When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. How are you all? I am fine, although this is the third time I have recorded this. Just having a few technical issues with uh, noises in the house from other members of my family. I bring you the benefits of recording in lockdown. Anyway, never mind. All's well here. Are you all okay? I hope you are. Um, Gosh, we've had a bit of a a mystery solved uh, this week. Um, It's called the mystery of the missing iPad. So going back in time, 10, 11 months ago, um, my son, we shall name him Culprit X, uh, had been on the iPad at a time when he was not permitted to. And Culprit X had been on this numerous times. This was not the first time he was caught in this way. He had been given various warnings, which seemed to serve no purpose whatsoever. So when Culprit X was discovered still on the iPad, it's fair to say that I might have removed it from him um, and been a bit cross. And I was so cross that I hid the iPad from him. And I do remember at the time congratulating myself on what a good hiding place it was and how he would never find it. Indeed, yes, it was such a good place uh, because I couldn't remember where it was. To be fair to me, I only started looking about six, eight weeks later when I decided he could actually have it back. And I'd forgotten. I looked, I thought it was in the garage, looked there, no. Then I thought it would be in the wardrobe, no. Looked everywhere, family were convinced that I'd either thrown it away or given it to charity, uh, among other things. And I said, no, there is no way I would do that. Absolutely no way. I, I was certain it was here. I just didn't know where. So this had gone on. I tried to find your, I had tried to do the find your iPhone, all of that business, no, nothing. Um, So scroll forward in time to a few days ago when Culprit X was complaining of a bit of a tummy ache. Nothing serious, but I said, right, let's get a hot water bottle out. Now, I don't know what it is. These days, you don't just get a hot water bottle. It comes with this sort of knitted outfit that it sits in. We never used to have that when we were kids. I mean, if we got burnt, if we got scalded on a on a hot water bottle, then more fool us for not being careful. Whereas these days, you know, anyway... Um, So I went and reached for the hot water bottle in its knitted outfit and reached in to get the hot water bottle out. And what came out was not a hot water bottle. (laughs) 
but it was the iPad. And I do actually now remember having to widen the neck of this knitted thing to force the iPad in. Um, in my anger at the time, it was done quite easily. But I do remember that and thinking, as I say, oh, this is such a good place. He'll never find it because boys are never going to get a hot water bottle out. So there it was. It was found. It was located. And it's incredible because now things look so much bigger. Instead of watching something on my phone, I can watch it on the iPad. Yes, you're right. I have taken over control of the iPad. Thank you very much. Um, but things are so much bigger. It's incredible. Um, so, th so there we go. The case of the missing iPad has been solved and that's all very good. And what else is good is we've got some great, some great books to talk to you about. I have already talked to you about these books twice already. But as I say, due to technical reasons, I'm talking to you about them a third time. And I made mistakes first time as well. So let's hope I, this is seamless. <laughs> It won't be, but anyway, we can hope. Um, but the books I'm going to talk to you about today are The Marlowe Murder Club, Robert Thorogood, The Firm, John Grisham, Containment by Vanda Simmon, uh, Agent Running in the Field, John McCarry, and Wondersmith by Jessica Townsend. Quite a selection, quite a collation there for you. Um, and let's just get straight into it. Uh, the first book, sorry for all the background noise while I get the books back in the right order, because as I say, third time, third time lucky and I still got it wrong. The Marlowe Murder Club is written by Robert Thorogood. Robert is very well known. He uh, came up with the original idea for Death in Paradise, which is a very sort of famous uh, series on BBC TV. Um, for those of you around the world, you, you probably should be able to get it. I know a lot of the series is on Netflix, certainly in the UK and I believe worldwide. So do have a look at that. Um, they're, they're lovely sort of um, cosy crimes set on a on a beautiful uh, tropical island. Um, they're thoroughly enjoyable by the whole family, I would say. And I have talked about that series and some of the books Robert has previously written that relate to the brand of Death in Paradise. And this is the first one, as far as I'm aware, of Robert sort of stepping away from that Death in Service. Death in Service? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Philippa, you're not working at the moment. Right, from Death in Paradise. Have I been saying death in service all this time? Frankly, it's the third time. I'm not starting again. <laughs> Bear with me. It's it's going to be like that, I'm afraid. I'll apologise now. Anyway, so this is the first time Robert has stepped away from the Death in Paradise brand, as far as I'm aware, and has written a book called The Marlowe Murder Club. Um, it's sort of hot on the heels of Richard Osmond's The Thursday Murder Club uh, and Ellie Griffiths's uh, Postscript Murders, which I thought was excellent. And I would say the Marlowe Murder Club is right up there with Ellie Griffiths's Postscript Murders. I thought, uh, I, th I think I thought both those books are better than the Thursday Murder Club. And if you think about how many people have enjoyed and bought the Thursday Murder Club, then I think there's a lot of people looking for something else, something else like that. And this delivers it and some. So let's read the blurb to you. Judith Potts is 77 years old and blissfully happy. She lives on her own in a faded mansion just outside Marlow. There's no man in her life to tell her what to do or how much whiskey to drink. And to keep herself busy, she sets crosswords for the Times newspaper. 
One evening, while out swimming in the Thames, Judith witnesses a brutal murder. Unconvinced by the police's attempts to uncover who did it, she starts investigating and soon hooks up with the salt of the earth Susie, a local dog walker, and Beck's the vicar's perfect home county's wife. Together, they are the Marlowe Murder Club, and when another body turns up, they begin to realise that they have a real-life serial killer on their hands, because the puzzle they set out to solve has become a trap from which they might never escape. Well, that sounds good, doesn't it? And I can tell you that I thought it was a great book. I like the inclusion of the location by the river um, and what that added to the story. I love the fact that she designs these crosswords. Um, I like the fact that she's a strong character, different, um, and that she sort of joins forces with these other two women. I just thought it was really good. It's a good read. It's not so scary that you're going to stay up at night sort of quaking under the bed sheets, uh, too scared to go to sleep. I just thought it was a, a great crime mystery um, and one that I think a lot of people will enjoy. Really good, really fresh and uh, I, and I hope there's more. So I think we need to talk to Robert and find out more about how he came up with the idea for the book, uh, how what the process was, all sorts of things. Let's talk to Robert now, shall we? So Robert, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Oh no, thank you very much for having me on. I'm very excited. That's I, this is my first interview, my first <laughs> radio interview at all about the book. So uh, let's see how it goes. Well, first of all, what a book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm holding it up. I don't know why, but I'm holding it up. It's, <laughs> it, it was a joy to read. It really was. Oh, thank you, Philippa. That's very kind of you to say. You, um, you spend months and months writing it and, and you get really ground down by the process mm. and it's wearisome and it's lonely and it's really strange eventually it going out into the world uh, and then having people respond. It's sort mm. of a dream come true. So I'm thrilled you, you liked it. When did you write the book? Has it been delayed because because of COVID in terms of being published or was it written during that time? No, I, but by I was very lucky in that I was uh, the timing worked fitted quite naturally with COVID. I came up with the idea about three or four years ago I because I've been writing Death and Paradise for 10 years now um, I, and I adore Death and Paradise, I love it, but I've been spending a lot of time in the head of variously eccentric white mm -hmm. middle-aged men <laughs> who are a bit like me, all of the unattractive versions of me, either neurotic or slapdash, both of which I can be. Um, and I wanted to write a story where women were the heroes, you know, I grew mm. up adoring Miss Marple, um, more so perhaps than Poirot, although that's that's sacrilegious mm. to say. And so I wanted to do a story where there were women who were the uh, detectives, where they solved it without reference to any men, and uh, they got to be the heroes of their own story. Um, and I was lucky enough to have a publishing deal and they were wanting another Death and Paradise novel. So I've written a series of standalone yes. Death and Paradise yeah. novels. And I said, look, I just want to write about these amazing women. I'm going to set it in Marlow, which is my hometown where I live, because the last thing I did was Death in Paradise, and that involved getting on an aeroplane, traveling mm. to the other side of the world to do research. I want to do research in, you know, walk out my front door, turn <laughs> yes. left, turn right. That's the research. Um, and, they, and they went for it. And the timing just so happened that I was deep, deep in writing when March came along. 
Um, I also had to, you know, avoid Richard Osman's book, which I had subsequently discovered was being published mm -hmm. with an essentially identical title and pitch. And I have read his book. It's absolutely brilliant and, and very, very, it's, it's, it's different enough from mine that you could read both and enjoy both. Um, you know, he has alternating chapters of different points yeah. of view, different characters, doesn't he? Whereas mine is, is just a, a more standard authorial voice following Judith in yeah. particular, but a few of the others. But the, I think there's a few of that genre now. It's a new genre in a way because we've got... Um, <laughs> it's it not is. a new genre. It's old as the hills. Well, it's Agatha Christie. Well, look, I that's got the inspiration true. for my title from Agatha Christie wrote a book that was published under the name The Tuesday Murder Club. So... Richard Osman and I have both um, stolen, I think, a little bit from Agatha Christie. But it's, I love seeing a resurgence in the genre. I love seeing how popular Richard's book is because I've been reading, you know, lighthearted murder mysteries my whole life. And I get frustrated that um, amongst the gang who love this sort of stuff, we, you know, we all love it and we talk mm. about it. But in the wider world, it's considered broadly naff, isn't it? You know, people don't think it's a, a proper genre, really, like hard crime is. You know, you, um, you bang a woman over the head and bundle her into the back of a boot of a car, and that's proper writing. Whereas, um, <laughs> I don't know, stab someone in their bed and then leave a medallion in their mouth. Yeah. That's considered silly somehow. They're both murders. But, but I think the demand is there because, you know, it's obvious from how Richard, Richard Osman's book has done. Also, there's Ellie Griffiths, The Postscript Murders. Yeah. That's another one of this. And, and I think you're going to see huge success with your book. But I was interested in what you were saying about wanting to write strong women. And actually, I thought, yes, it was great to read that. But it made me think about Death in Paradise and how actually your females there are very strong. It's actually, it's normally the men... In whatever well, I've it's seen. a funny one, isn't it? We we in 2021, we're very careful about what we are allowed to write about and what we aren't. So I have been, you know, I naturally, when I came up with Death and Paradise, wanted to write about the male condition. You know, I wanted to write mm. about a middle-aged man who was struggling in his work, who needed to go somewhere to be cured. That's how we've always thought of the the heroes, the white detective who gets sent out to the Caribbean, they're broken in some way. Mm. And then they get to the Caribbean and we put a team around them of talented police officers and friends and mentor figures, and, you know, <laughs> key workers, frankly, considering <laughs> some of our leads. And, um, and then they mend them. But, but what I, but it meant that I was always telling essentially stories from a male point of view. And I grew up surrounded by very, very strong and feisty women. My great aunts, my grandmother, I've, I've married to a super feisty woman. You know, I love the stories that the way women behave when they're together, how raucous mm -hmm. and ribald they can be. Um, and I just wanted some of that. I wanted some of that joy um, as a way of, finding a different way into telling the same sorts of stories because the Marlowe Murder Club as you know is essentially death in paradise but set in the home counties. Yes it is I mean, <laughs> there is essence of it but I, I, I it, it's just it's just a great it's a great story. Did all the characters come to you as one complete picture or did they introduce uh, themselves to you bit by bit? They did a little Judith came to me in one complete picture because she's based on very she's the she's the clearest character from my childhood we my mum's good friend Judith is she's named after they'd spend all day on the phone solving the telegraph crossword with each other um 
so she that sort of having a drink of whiskey at 6 p.m uh saying um being inferior to no one being totally self-sufficient super bright always the cleverest person in the room that sort of slightly posh old-fashioned post-war woman um judith was always going to be her but she's a widow in the story although there's more to it than that as you know mm -hmm. having read it but she's a widow in the story partly because also i want to write a story where the heroes were people that don't normally get to be heroes an older woman, a widow, is not a hero of a murder mystery story because they're invisible. We don't really allow them to have that level of agency. Mm. And Bex, similarly, I'm surrounded here in the home counties by very talented, successful, brilliant housewives. But nonetheless, they had to make a choice to be a housewife and give up careers. Mm. And so I was interested in mm. Bex being that sort of that perfect mother who maybe is questioning in her late 40s whether she has made all of the right choices um and then Susie similarly so so Bex is sort of ignored you know if you go to a, a dinner party and you say you're you're a housewife yeah. people yeah. aren't very excited but if you say you've got a job then they they seem to give you more credibility and then Susie is is the um the person who I think is the most heroic type of woman which is the single mum mm. you know the single mums mm. we know uh we, we've got kids and so we know some single mums um no single dads uh which is <laughs> which is worthy of comment or at least noticing as we pass through um and th the one who i based it on attends every single parents meeting uh, mm -hmm. goes to every show drops off picks up has food in the house still holds down a job raises her two kids and and again this is a hero in our society and is recognized as such you know people down the street know that mm -hmm. these people are amazing single mums housewives um elderly women uh, take an interest in their community but we don't really allow them to be heroes of of books do we so i just thought that would be my little um it's not seditious but that was my my rule was i would find women who don't normally get to be heroes there's a fourth woman as well tanika who mm. is sort of very much like my wife which is to say the sandwich generation who's raising kids holding yeah. down a career and is also because she's female expected to look after her dad because her dad's husband has left or died, I don't remember. Anyway, her dad's husband, uh, her, sorry, her dad is um, needs looking after. And Tanika has got brothers who could be helping out, but they don't help out because mm. they're not a woman. So, so that was sort of my thinking behind it all. I make it sound very mathematical and slightly process driven. Uh, and, I, and, and, and the right once and once the characters are in the story, hopefully it's quite an organic process to read it. <laughs> Um, but when I was constructing the story, I did, I wanted different types of women to represent different types of women I knew. Yes, and it, I think it, it delivers that and, and some. With the resolution, was that <laughs> always, and yes, good resolution, <laughs> <I> know, the, <laughs> yeah, not yeah. saying anymore, but was well, that always yeah. how it was going to be? Or did the story actually change as you were writing it? 50-50. I, I had a sense of where I was going with it. But if I'm honest, I worried it was going to be lame. I, you know, when you do a murder mystery, you just don't know. Um, you have this idea. I mean, I this is my theory of how Agatha Christie wrote. So I don't see how else she could have written. And I do exactly the same. I'm, I know other murder mystery writers would do the same. Is you kind of have to start with the reveal at the end. You have to start with the magic trick. What is the surprising reveal about the killer? Um, so I had a sense of what 
the res resolution, as we're going to call it euphemistically, was going to be. Um, but I was very pleased that when I got there, which was about a year and a half after I'd pitched it and then written a treatment and all along you're going, I don't know, is it going to work? Is it going to work? I think it works fine. But what definitely works is what goes on around the, resol the mm -hmm. resolution, because in the same way that I wanted these women to be heroes of their own stories and to be the detectives in their own crime novel. I mean, they're amateurs, they're not capital D detectives, yeah. they're lowercase <laughs> D detectives. I wanted them to catch the killer or not, although it is a lighthearted murder mystery, you might guess that mm -hmm. it's more likely that they do catch the killer rather than not. Um, I wanted them to completely do it on their own without any intervention or help. And I think I was, the, the actual whole, the, the, the scene of the ending, I think has come out rather well. I was very pleased with how it came out in the end. Do you think you could have written this as, as your first piece of writing? Uh, I mean, I know we, we talk about Death in Paradise, but there's a lot there's a lot more of writing that you've done apart mm. from that. But could this have been the first piece of work or do you think it, it's an outcome of, of all that you've experienced? I think that's a brilliant question and you're absolutely right. No, I couldn't have done it first. I wrote, there's, writing a novel is really hard. Any of your listeners who've tried to write a novel and loads and loads of people have, it's not just the number of words, it's the fact that, say for example, I write an episode of Death in Paradise, uh, we write the dialogue and a brief description of the beginning of the scene. So mm -hmm. we'd say, you know, interior police shack, it's the morning and the sun is streaming through the windows. Richard walks in if it was in a series one thing. And to write a 60 minute episode can take, you can do it in a few days, but actually a couple of weeks, three weeks, because you're mm -hmm. not talking about a huge amount of words. And in murder mysteries, you quite often realize that you've got the wrong um, order of suspects or you've revealed something you shouldn't have revealed. Mm. So you're constantly changing, constantly changing, which in Telly-land is easy peasy. But when you've got 80,000 words mm. and you realize that you've got the wrong killer or you realize that someone who appears to be ostensibly a good character turns out to be bad, no, no they should ostensibly be a bad character who turns out to be worse or whatever, mm. in order to just lift the blocks of the story and to keep trying to work on it, it takes forever. It was so hard. And I wanted to learn how to do that through writing the standalone Death and Paradise novels, where I was at least allowed characters that I'd written for before, a setting yeah. that I knew reasonably well. Um, and I absolutely, after having written four Death and Paradise novels, thought to myself, I think I can, I'm ready to give it a go at doing this in a new mm. story with new characters. But it did involve heroically large amounts of rewriting that took weeks and weeks and months and months. Just, just because every time I went wrong, it wasn't just a quick find and replace or on a, on yeah. a character title or rewrite a few scenes. It was writing t rewriting tens of thousands of words. So the finished book, which I hope is a breezy, effortless read, was just a pain. It was, <laughs> it was blood, hard, sweat and bloody, tears. <laughs> yeah, it was just hard work. Um, yeah, it was really, really tough. So I'm glad I had the practice. I mean, as much as anything else, I know now that I will finish. The biggest fear of writing a novel is the mm. fear of, will I ever get to the end? Mm. What if I just don't? Because every day you're going, I don't have to write. I could just take the day off. <laughs> that little voice is horrible. Uh I mean, I can see this on on the TV very, very easily. <laughs> Presumably, that that's already been 
discuss? Well, I hope so. I mean, I don't know. Uh, I one of the joys of trying to write a novel is writing less televisually, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Because my day job for many, many years, I mean, for the last 10 years, uh, just on Death and Paradise alone, is about telling stories through images. I actually, if I'm honest, really struggle to tell stories that aren't slightly shaped like television stories, if you mm -hmm. see what I mean. <laughs> and one of the joys of the book and writing the books is learning how to give characters an interior monologue. Because for example, on the telly, the actor provides the interior monologue because they, mm. they can look pained or worried. And you yeah. can see what they're thinking, but you don't write it. So to have access to that is very exciting, but it is, I've, I recently went through it and I realized I've written it in five parts. It's basically a five, the book I've just written is a five hour long serial, five part <laughs> hour long serial, uh, five hours in total, because I just can't help myself. You know, mm. th there's a rhythm to, the way I tell stories now that does have cliffhangers and you know I try to put in as many actual genuine cliffhangers as possible because um because I just can't I can't I can't help it. it's how I think now yes I, I'm very intrigued to see to see it on the screen and to see who Judith would, would well be. let's see I mean I don't know let's see how the book goes let's see if Telly wants to make it and let's see if we can I mean I, I'll be honest there are a lot of actors who would be amazing as Judith, mm. but um, fingers crossed. Who knows, one day we'll, the actor will appear on our TV screens playing Judith and it'll be, uh, it'll be amazing. But for the moment, let's just get the yeah. book out. <laughs> I, what you're saying is calm down, Philippa. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 calm down me as well. No, um, I think I can see it happening. I, I, I really can. So you wrote the Marlowe Murder Club to sort of have a standalone, have a, a fresh book mm -hmm. away from Death in Paradise. Would you then be drawn to writing a follow-up? To that which would be amazing oh, yes. you're but you're not now in the groove of uh, single books no no I, I'm, I'm going to do the follow-up I'm planning it at the moment um the sort of the, the joy of doing the Marlowe murder club made me fall in love with all of the characters so I'm not leaving them alone no I'm struggling a bit at the moment with uh, what the second album should be about in effect because mm with the first book there was quite a lot of backstory you know with a pilot episode with the first book yes. in the series you've you've got all of this backstory that you trickle through and Judith in particular has quite a uh, punchy backstory and so for book two I've got to sort of work out how much we carry on with that what other characters we could bring in um so I'm in the, I'm in the mulling and thinking stage where it all feels quite exciting and I haven't made any mistakes yet because I haven't written anything down yet. And you're not tempted to move to a completely different genre, to, you know, completely different, I don't know, mid-grade or horror, poetry, <laughs> comedy. I mean, there's comedy, there's comedy in this. Horror, poetry. <laughs> well, it's kind of you say, yes. Um, the thing is, is that it's a, it's a quest, isn't it? They say, don't they, that writers always tell the same story over and over again. <laughs> and I think there's some truth in that. And so the quest that I am on is to try and write as good a murder mystery story as I can. There are other ways of telling stories that I have done. Last year, I wrote um, a TV series for Sky called Trackers, which was quite a hard boiled mm. uh, crime spy thriller um, with swearing and nudity and sex and all of these things that we'd never get in a Death in Paradise uh, world or indeed in a Marlowe Murder Club world. Um, so they do appeal, but the 
the thing I'm trying to, it's like I, many years ago, I got employed to make a chair and I just want to learn how to make the best chair I can. And so that's how I feel about it. And I think you see it with Anthony Horowitz, not to compare me to him, but you see how over the years he's trying to perfect and explore what a golden age murder mystery story is in 2021 or in 2020 mm. or whatever. Um, and that I find endlessly fascinating. So well, as long as I'm, I've got the itch, I can't help myself. I'm a recidivist. I keep going back to wanting to tell another story with an improbable killer and a group of talented people trying to catch that person, him or her, whoever it is. So if you're at a cocktail party, imagine <laughs> you were. Imagine, jeez. Yes. Yeah, it's been a while. This <laughs> is some... Talking to you is the closest I've come to a cocktail party since March. <laughs> I should have sent you a martini in the post, oh, but anyway. maybe not. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so you're at a cocktail party and someone says, asks you what you do. Mm -hmm. You know, are you? A, what would your immediate response be? Author, writer, screenwriter? Oh, you're just I'm, a writer. I'm a, just a writer. Yes. I think so. It's um, writers tell stories in, in different mediums. You know, with the TV show, it's a gang show. You know, there's script editors and script producers. I was doing it only yesterday, in fact, where you all meet up in a room or virtually in a coronavirus world. And you talk about how you could do a um, Death in Paradise episode, you know. Um, what world could it be set in? Who the suspects would be? What could be a great reveal at the end? Any twists and turns, and and that is writing in a team. Mm. But then, so is so is writing on your own with a book, which is much more authored, obviously, because there you are left alone for months at a time, and you are boss. In TV land, mm. you're never quite boss because <laughs> there might be a hurricane, or we might not get the actor mm. you want, or we might not be able to afford the location you've written. So you're never boss, boss. In the book, you can be totally megalomaniacally in charge, uh, which is very exciting. Mm -hmm. And it's just storytelling, isn't it? I sort yes. of think it's not it's not much grander than that. I do adverbs and things, which I shouldn't do in the book. So that's different from the TV show. But apart from that, it's just trying to tell exciting stories that make people want to stick with it. And I think you absolutely deliver that. The Marley Murder Club, <laughs> I think, is a, is a great book. And I can't wait to see it just take off as, as I'm sure it will so Robert thank you very much for joining me today not at all thank you very much for being my first interview how exciting <laughs> <laughs> well wasn't that interesting oh, I just love talking to the authors because everyone is different everyone has a different process a different story um I just I just think it's great and I thoroughly enjoyed reading the Marlowe Murder Club and uh, and hope you will too do let me know what you think I I I imagine you're going to love it. I think it'll do really well. So there we go. Uh, so moving from a book that's just about to be published this week, hopefully, if everything uh, hasn't been delayed, certainly at the time of recording, it's going to be published this week. Um, so you probably have time actually just to get pre-orders in. Uh, it's due to be published on Thursday. So see how you go. It, it's out any time. Um, so we're moving from a book that is just coming out to one that was published in the early 1990s, would you believe? The Firm by John Grisham. I remember going on holiday about that time and it seemed like everybody, every single person 
was reading the firm. Of course, in those days, it was easier to see what people were reading because no one had e-readers at, at that stage. Um, but uh, yeah, it was such a popular book and there was a film with Tom Cruise in. Um, it's really a book of its time. And I've always held it up as the the best legal drama I had I had read. And I wanted to go back and read it and experience that again. And I did enjoy it. But it made me realise that sometimes I look back at books, at films with sort of rose-tinted glasses, and actually the, the books, the films aren't as good. They're still great, but they're not the the one. And it made me realise that actually when I read a John Grisham now say, I should view it independently and not bring my impression of what a previous book has been like. And maybe I'd enjoy it more. I mean, I love legal dramas. You know me, love them. Um, but anyway, here's the blurb, which I'm... I'm sure you're well aware of. He thought it was his dream job. It turned into his worst nightmare. When Mitch McDear qualified third in his class at Harvard, offers poured in from every law firm in America. Bendini, Lambert and Locke were a small, well-respected firm, but their offer exceeded Mitch's wildest expectations. A fantastic salary, a new home and the keys to a brand new BMW. Except for the mysterious deaths of previous lawyers with the firm and the FBI investigations, and the secret files. Mitch soon realises that he's working for the Mafia's law firm and there's no way out because you don't want this company's severance package. To survive, he'll have to play both sides against each other and navigate a vast criminal conspiracy that goes higher than he ever imagined. So if you haven't read this book before, read it. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's quite a long, stodgy book, but, it, but it's great. Um, it made me realise that it wasn't the leader, though, or it was then. But now the sort of the Michael Connellys, the Steve Kavanaghs are definitely ahead. Um, but isn't that the way things always things always evolve? I won't go back and read it a third time, but I'm glad I went back. And I certainly won't keep saying, oh, I think the firm was better than this book. I will just look back on it fondly uh, and move on. <laughs> so there we go. Dear, oh dear. Uh, and I haven't had any chocolate biscuits today and I'm coming out with that rubbish. So that, who knows what else I'm going to say. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad I went back to read it. But uh, yeah, it, there won't be a third time. So there we go. The Firm by John Grisham. Now the next book. This was great. Oh, just love this. This is Containment by Vander Simon. And Simon is spelled S-Y-M-O-N. It's actually the third book in a series, but don't don't worry about it. Just don't. This one's called Containment and I had no issue with coming in on this book. I didn't feel like I'd missed out on previous stories. I didn't feel there was anything I didn't know or understand. Um, the author is very skilled at, at helping you. And in fact, I didn't know it was part of a series until I finished the book. Um, I just saw it and picked it up and started reading it and thought, great. Actually, I did think looking at the cover and the word containment, I thought it was more a sci-fi, um, but it's not. It's it's a super uh, crime book set in New Zealand. And I did actually listen to some of it on Audible. And that just, it raised it even more for me. Uh, the, the narrator's sort of New Zealand accent just allowed me to place it. Well, I can't even call her a narrator. She's an actor because it was extraordinary what she brought in. And she was the character. She was this main character, Detective Constable Sam. And um, 
and she really brought so much to it. It helped me envisage everything much more easily. Um, let me read you the blurb, the blurb even. Chaos reigns in the sleepy village of Aramona on the New Zealand coast when a series of shipping containers wash up on the beach and looting begins. Detective Constable Sam Shepard experiences the desperation of the scavengers firsthand and ends up in an ambulance, nursing her wounds and puzzling over an assault that left her assailant for dead. What appears to be a clear-cut case of a cargo ship running aground soon takes a more sinister turn when a skull is found in the sand and the body of a diver is pulled from the sea, a diver who didn't die of drowning. As first officer at the scene, Sam is handed the case, much to the displeasure of her superiors, and she must put together an increasingly confusing series of clues to get to the bottom of a mystery that may still have more victims. Um, it's quite a short book, I think 200 pages, is it? Let's have a look. Oh no, 260. It felt quicker than that. There's a lot of very short chapters, so it's easy to get into and stay connected with. I don't know how many books I've read based in New Zealand. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I've read any. I must have, but n none are springing to mind. But I liked it. This Detective Constable Sam Shepard, she, she's someone I would want on my team. Um, she's strong. She's independent. She's gutsy. She, but she's human. Um, maybe you would argue that the story is quite simple. I don't think it's simple, but it's not ultra convoluted. Certainly, I'd, I'd say that. Uh, and I thought it was great. I've got the next book bound uh, in the series to read as well that's going to come out soon. Um, this one has been out um, March 2020 it came out, so it should be uh, possible for you to get a copy. I know some of you find it hard to get books that are just published um, according to where you are in the world, but um, really good. And if you can't get the book, listen to it listen to the audio books. I just thought it was excellent. There's a lot to it. And I'm afraid I've never heard of the author before, Van der Simmen, but she's certainly someone I'm going to be looking out for from, from this point on. Apparently she was shortlisted for the CWA New Blood Dagger Award as well. So that sort of speaks volumes for that. Really, really good reading. Oh, and here there's a quote on the front. A sassy heroine, a fabulous sense of place and rip-roaring stories with a twist. Kate Moss. Yes, Kate, that is exactly what I was trying to say, although it's taken me five hours to, to say that. I don't, know, I don't know why I call this podcast quick book reviews anymore, because I'm waffling so much. Anyway, somebody said wanging, wanging on. I quite like that. Instead of waffling, I've been wanging on about this. Anyway, there we go. Containment, Van der Simmen. Really enjoyed it. Uh, the next one is called Agent Running in the Field by John le Carre. John le Carre needs no introduction. Sadly, he died a few months ago. Um, and actually, he is the narrator of the audiobook, um, the audio version of this. I didn't know it at the time because I'd got the book on um, the library app that I use. And it doesn't tell you who the narrator or actor is. So it was only when I finished it and I thought that voice was sublime and really made the characters. Who was it that I discovered who, who it was, that it was John McCarry himself. And that really added something to it. And I, I as I say, I think he he brought so much to the story. Now, if you are a real spy fiction fan, which I am not, I don't know if you would enjoy the book as much. I'm, I find it hard to get into a lot of spy fiction and I really enjoyed this. So either it's different to a lot of spy books and therefore you may or may not like it or I'm changing. Maybe that's me. Maybe I'm changing. 
and I'm actually getting to like spy fiction. Who knows? Um, but just bear that in mind that to judge it on your own merits. But I really enjoyed it. The blurb is this. Nat, a veteran of Britain's secret intelligence service, thinks his years as an agent runner are over, but MI6 have other plans. To tackle the growing threat from Moscow Centre, Nat is put in charge of The Haven, a defunct substation of London General with a ragtag band of spies. His weekly badminton session with the young, introspective, Brexit-hating Ed offers respite from the new job. But it is Ed of all unlikely people who will take Nat down the path of political anger that will ensnare them all. And there we go. Um, uh, as I say, good book, good story, great narration. Um, I personally, I really enjoyed it. But I'd be very interested to know what you think. Um, if if you like spy fiction, if you read the book, please let me know what, what you think. I did hear a strange story that the title, it wasn't supposed to be Agent Running in the Field, but that was the instruction they've given to the book cover designer who took it literally instead of um, sort of illustratively and uh, instead of just drawing an agent running in the field, use that as the actual title. Um, so how strange to take it so literally. Um, but there we go. I don't know if that story is true or not. If you are the book designer, please let me know. I'd love to know. But yeah, Agent Running in the Field, John McCarry. Now, the last book is mid-grade fiction and part of a series. This book is called Wondersmith uh, by Jessica Townsend. It's the second in the series, uh, which features a girl called Morrigan Crow. And in fact, um, Wondersmith is called Wondersmith, The Calling of Morrigan Crow. Um, I think they're great books. I think that they're, say they're mid-grade. Mid-grade is age 8 to 12, allegedly. I found this quite scary in places. But then I found, I found The Secret 7 scary. Oh my goodness, I found The Famous Five even scarier. There was a book I remember reading about elves as well. And I remember being quite scared at that. So I'm probably not the best marker for whether a book is right for, for the age group or not. Um, but just be aware, every child is different. But I would say it, it would be right for me sort of 10 to 12 upwards, whatever age you are. And if you've been a fan of books like Harry Potter and looking for something fresh, different, then I think these have a lot to commend them. The third book has just been published as well. So you've got three in a series to, to get into. There's some, some meat there uh, for you. So the blurb is this. If you want to belong, you have to believe. Morrigan Crow has escaped her deadly curse and joined the Wondrous Society, a place she can finally belong. But the magical city of Nevermore isn't the safe haven Morrigan imagined. Someone is poisoning her friends against her. Society members are disappearing and the evil Ezra Squall is determined to show Morrigan the true nature of wonder, something that's becoming ever harder to resist. Uh, it's a great book. It's a good story. There's lots of ups and downs to it. It's um, a darker book than the first one. And I believe the third book is a little brighter. Um, but that's good that each book in the series is different. I hadn't heard of Jessica Townsend until I was uh, I took a child um, to the Hay Festival. When I say I took a child, I didn't just randomly select a child. I took a child that belongs to me, not Child X, not Culprit X, um, the, 
the other child. And uh, oh gosh, I really am going on and on now. Aren't I? We're nearly there. Don't worry. It's nearly over. Um, and went to see Jessica Townsend and I was just bowled over by her. I thought she was really inspirational, um, great imagination. Uh, so we started getting her books. And I've, I think I've been rewarded for that. I've got a lot from them. The audiobooks are also great. The actor who narrates it or acts it um, is amazing. How she does so many different characters, I don't know. How she remembers how each one sounds, it's just great. But it does help you to picture the book uh, very easily and, and might be a good one for long car journeys whenever you might have a long car journey again, who knows? But anyway, there we go. Um, so that's Wondersmith, part of the Nevermore series. It's second in the series by Jessica Townsend. So there, I think we've covered everything. Been a wide range of different books, new ones, not so new ones, old ones, mid-grade, some good audiobook versions, some good ones to read. Hopefully there's something there for you. So just to recap, we had The Marlowe Murder Club by Robert Thorogood. Loved, loved, loved that book. We had The Firm by John Grisham. Still good. Uh, Containment by Vanda Simmon. Love that book. Agent Running in the Field by John Le Carre. Really enjoyed it. And Wondersmith by Jessica Townsend. Uh, Wonder, I should say, is spelt with a U, not an O. Um, that was good as well. So lots to choose from and I can't wait to talk to you again next week so many good books to talk to you about and another author interview um so look you just take care of yourselves look after yourselves and um and I'll be back with you in a week's time take care of yourselves now bye-bye you've been listening to the quick book reviews podcast that's enough books said no one ever see you again soon 